days, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Calm storms and seas. 
We've seen these good things that Jesus is. So much so that we, like the disciples, are tempted to see Jesus, the life with Jesus, is all good things. What begins to fade to the background, of course, is the cross. And this is the disciples' conundrum, is that they've followed Jesus and they've seen these good things. And then finally Peter says, okay, we, we, we're confessing that you are the Messiah. What does Jesus instantly do after that? Bad things are going to happen to me. And in order to follow this path into goodness, bad things are going to happen to you. You are, too, going to have to pick up your cross and forsake what is near and dear to you. These good things almost appear like interruptions in a cursed world, is what Jesus is saying. This thing isn't going to get leveraged back into God's plan and unity and kingdom just by a few miracles. And it's going to take something much grander than that. And so last Sunday, we, we looked at the transfiguration. And the transfiguration mirrors the baptism in some ways, in that, in that Jesus has said, this is my son. It is said by the Father from heaven that this is my son whom I love. Um, and, and both of those, both this story of the baptism and the story of the transfiguration contain God's testimony about who Jesus is. And so in this passage, before we have Peter's testimony, and then they go and receive, three of the disciples go and receive God's testimony about who Jesus is. And what that sets up is this sort of um, glorified vision that can sustain them. So last Sunday, I cheated and jumped to Second Peter. And we talked about how that transfiguration is, is this moment in which Second Peter in his letter is going to argue that we know creation is going to come back together again. We know that God is going to restore everything because we've seen it on the mountain. Many of us don't use the transfiguration in that way, but it's almost this glimpse of the resurrected and, and one, and time fades away there. He's conversing with Moses and Elijah. He's, he's um, encapsulated in light. Um, Peter, not knowing what to say, says maybe we should live here, not knowing that someday we will, um, but it is too soon. Uh, Peter uh, is a good friend, I think, because he tries to keep his loved ones from going to death. And so we, we shame him a lot while Peter's just not getting it. And it's like, if you really like somebody, you wouldn't be like, yes, I accept it. Let's go to the cross, the worst way we know how to die, and leave you there. And that's, that sounds like a good plan. I think Peter shows himself to be one who truly cares in this way. Is that he's like, maybe we could just stay here. Why do we have to go do that? That sounds like not pleasant, um, to be fair to Peter. Um, and then what I tried to do this Sunday, and what we do when we read these Gospels is, is, with the Lent season, is we walk towards the cross with Jesus. And so we look first at these glorious things that, that are the good news that can sustain us. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these miracles all occur before his predictions of his death. It's almost like you need these tastes of what is possible in the restoration of things before you can hear the news that this is going to end poorly. And so Jesus continually will sort of talk about that, and in Luke's turn, um, it's different than Mark's. Mark's is almost told in halves. The first half, um, Galilee, have fun, hang out with your buddies, do miracles. Second half, uh, not good things. Um, Luke says that Jesus um, resolutely 
sets his face towards Jerusalem. Um, the Greek word is, is face, but there's set his mind. Um, it depends on what your translation has. But what happens in, in, in this verse after the transfiguration and the predictions of his death is he begins to say, my face, my direction, my will, my destiny is set towards Jerusalem. He knows that's where he's going to go and that's where he's going to die. This is, this is the turn, I think, in Luke's gospel. It's interesting here that he also begins to turn away from Matthew and Mark, and certainly John, in his telling of the story. He's kind of been following rough outlines from them, but this moment he sort of goes in his own direction as he tells the story of Jesus going towards Jerusalem and to the cross. And last Sunday, I think I made the mistake of saying, and he goes directly there. Uh, he does nothing of the sort. Uh, if we had a map, he sort of ping-pongs around. But his face, his will, and his direction is set towards that place for the appointed hour and time. And it's interesting in the previous story that, that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus, if you, if you were to translate it that way. They're talking about his way away from the world. And what this passage 57 begins with is when the days drew near for him to be taken up. The time has turned. It's time for them to sort of go to this place and see this happening. So we'll return to what it means to set his face, I think, at the end of the sermon, and this hinge between what is the, the yes and the no, or this, this glorified path and this one in which we um, self-renunciate and die, too, uh, at the end. But the next part of this story, the part right for us, is, is they're going to cut through Samaria. Now, Jews, most of you are familiar with this, Jews and Samaritans do not get along. Um, the Jews think um, Samaritans practice like a, a bastardized version of their religion. They're not fans of their way of practicing the religion. So there is high um, religious tension here in the ancient Near East. You can not imagine, I mean, it doesn't happen like that at all today. There is no religious tension in the ancient Near East today. Um, no, there's, you can imagine that that's sort of what's going on, though, is that there's this high religious tension between lots of different groups that have grown um, uh, the Jews, the Samaritans, uh, the Jews are divided into sort of three groups, too, as well, and they, they war with each other. We know the Pharisees the best from our Bibles, but you'll hear about the Zealots um, and the, the Essenes. I can never pronounce that one. I probably pronounced it wrong there. But you hear about these other groups that are sort of um, around. And so there's division into groups, but certainly for the Jews, the Samaritans are no bueno. They're not good. Um, and they're going to cut through this place, and Jesus is not welcomed there. Um, uh, it says, but the people did not welcome because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, there's two um, reasons why they may not have welcomed him. One, um, Samaritans wouldn't welcome Jews that much to begin with, nor would Jews welcome Samaritans. Fair enough. Uh, if they've been following this Jesus story at all, and the story about who he might be is getting out, and he's coming through your land to go and overthrow Rome, which is a possible thing you might be thinking, then when Rome goes, okay, who came from which land to overthrow us? Oh, they came from Samaria. Um, there's a little bit of self-protection here is that like, you know, um, if Greenland wanted to take over America, that they came through Canada, and they were like, well, the Canadians had something to do with this, so we'll take them on too. Um, is that they're cutting through this territory, and maybe they're like, no, we don't want to be associated with that. 
regardless of which they don't welcome him. And, and the disciples have this great idea, having seen the, the two of them that asked this were two that were invited up to the mountain. They know the power of what Jesus has. Interestingly enough, the debate right before this is who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus in power. So they've heard that he's going to the cross, but they also saw the glory. And like many of us, the glory overrides the bad news. And so we think maybe it's all glory. And so they're debating who gets to be in the high places at this moment in time. And here, having seen Jesus' power, they say, hey, should we call fire down on these Samaritans? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, and who Jesus was just talking to with Elijah, this is something that seems to have happened in Israel's history. Now, if you're reading the text slowly, there's this interesting way in which Jesus is about to be taken up into heaven, and they're asking for him to call fire down from heaven. They have different thoughts about what heaven is. The one is where Jesus will go and reign and forgive and restore. Theirs is where it's the place where fire comes from that consumes our enemies. And what happens is, is that um, Jesus rebukes them. That's all we get is that Jesus rebukes them on this. And they seem to be missing something. One, in one of the first passages we start to talk about, Jesus tells those who complain about him that he has come to seek and save the lost. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This is taking very seriously sick because for these Jews, the sickest people around, other than the Romans, might be the Samaritans. Um, and sometimes, for some reason, we hate the people who are closest to us, and the, the people on margin off, and this is uh, sadly the history of the church, the people on margin off are real en enemies. The people way off, we just don't even think about. Um, so the Romans are way off, but the Samaritans are corrupting your thing. So perhaps maybe they hated the Samaritans more. Um, and so they think this would be, these people are just sick, they're completely lost. Let's call fire down and consume them. Knowing Jesus has forgiven sins, had table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, um, and said that he's here to restore that which is broken, they still don't quite get it. And Jesus rebukes them for this. The second thing about that is, is that they're, um, this Jesus movement thing is this image of God in which something different is practiced and displayed. Um, in the book of Romans, it says that God's um, kindness is meant for our repentance. We don't think of kindness as leading to repentance. Often we think you have to sort of convict people and, and that'll handle it. Um, but this is all a grand setup for the parable that most people are familiar with, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan as well. Jesus is not willing to cut bait on these people. And so if you're familiar with that parable, and we may talk about it as we go towards the cross here, but they, Jesus tells the story about man falls in a pit, three righteous Jewish people pass, don't help him. Samaritan sort of comes and helps him out, and this is response to the question, who is my neighbor? And they say, Jesus said, who acted neighborly to him? And they say, the one who had mercy towards him, which if you're reading very closely the text, is to almost say they can't say the Good Samaritan. They just have to say, well, I guess the one who was nice to him. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine, pick right or left in America, somebody that they dislike so much, um, and it's not even worth saying because you can just imagine which one group likes so much, that it turns out they do something good and Jesus says to them, which one had mercy upon them, and, or which one was a neighbor to them, and they're not like, 
oh, the good uh, gay person, oh, the good Republican, oh, the good that, they just say, I guess the Lord had mercy on her. Um, we don't have it within our bones to admit our errors on that. Um, well, we got lucky that time, Jesus, because they really are backwards, so I guess the one who had mercy on him. Which is to say that at this moment, Jesus has a different relationship to Samaria than those who are off than the disciples want him to have. So they turn around and they go to another village. And then this next three sort of questions are about discipleship. Now, I don't know um, when everybody here became a Christian, but there's a couple of classical places where that happened. One is on sort of a youth mission trip, um, probably closer to where I was. Another is sort of like a Billy Graham sort of revival type crusade. Another is within the church. Another is within, within your parents. And, and when it clicks and when it starts to make sense, um, I think we're like the people who have read the first half of the gospel. Whether what really got it for you was the forgiveness of your past sins, God's victory over death and transformation of the grave, um, a new ethic which transforms the way that we can relate, whatever was the gateway in which your freedom is, I think many times when we become Christians, we end up in the same place as these three people. The first comes to Jesus, boldly and says, I will follow you wherever you go, announcing that he will follow him wherever he goes. Now, we, there's so many great ways we could read into this. Um, being a preacher, nothing stops me from reading into these things at all. <laughs> um, uh, but you can think about this idea that I've been following Jesus and I will go with you wherever you will go. It's already clear, I think, in the gospel, and certainly as it goes on, nobody can go where he's going. It's only Jesus that can go there. Only Jesus can go to the cross. Second, um, there's this, there's this uh, I think in our convergence, there's this, there's this zealot nature of, I will go with you wherever you will go. I will take on all that you've asked me to take on. There's a different story that Jesus tells about who goes to war without counting the cost first. Who goes to build a tower without counting everything that goes into it? Certainly, many of us, when we became Christians, did not do all the cost and calculations. Um, and yet, when we find out the news and the challenges that come with this walk, whatever they may be, perhaps we're like the disciples of John who say, But to whom else shall we go? Only you have the words of life. Jesus' reply to him is that you can go to wherever I can go, but the fact is I'm not going much of anywhere. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I will follow you wherever you will go, to mansions of glory or to pits or whatever, and his, his, his response to him is that there's not a place in which I'm going. You're thinking about it wrong. Jesus in this world and in this earth at this time has no place where he stakes out his home. This is similar to Peter's temptation on the transfiguration. It's let's make tabernacles and live here. I will follow you to that place and stay with you, Jesus. But there's no place where we can stay. The next person, and this is interesting, it changes. Jesus says to him, follow me. And he says, let me first go and bury my father. Now these temptations in this world have to do with security and identity, which we know a lot about in our world, security and identity. Um, 
But what most people think that's happening here is his father is not like dead, and he says, follow me. And the guy's like, well, can I just go throw him in the ground and then move on? Um, what happened is his father is in the process of dying. Um, it seems to be what he's saying. And so what this one person wants to say, Jesus says, follow me. And you'll notice that the answers have changed. Jesus um, was hidden 100% until this point with everybody he said, follow him towards. Um, and he strikes out here. Well, we don't know what happened to these people. Um, maybe he doesn't strike out. Hard to say. Um, but he says, follow me. And the guy says, let me go home and be with my, my father as he ages and dies. And then when that's all over with, I'll follow you. The immediacy of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming doesn't really have time for that. Now is the time to go and do this. And there's all sorts of layered interpretations you can put on this. Perhaps if he goes home and stays with his father when he's dead, he gets his portion of the estate, and then he has more security in the world, which keeps him bounded in security as he goes forth. I mean, it would be nice, I think, for, I think most missionaries would say, it would be nice to be independently wealthy and not have to worry about any of this. So, so maybe he's got some security that he can do with this, or something that can come out of this. And Jesus' response is to, to let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Is that this way of sort of looking back and holding ourselves in, in that way. And this one, I don't think, I mean, Christians, early Christians, and Christians today have robust funeral practices. They obviously did not mean that there's no place for funerals. I don't think anybody took it that way. But what they're naming is this ways in which we're pulled back into things. We try to settle our affairs. We try to do this. We try to do all that before we go on the kingdom. Now, uh, I have the, there's like five people in here who know who Donald Miller is, but I had a, the privilege of going to hear him speak, and he tried to, to say to people in the room, he said, what's holding you up from doing what you want? Uh, and let's have five people come up to do that. The first thing he said, who wants to write a book? And they were like, you know, 30 hands, 40, 50 hands go up and goes, throws out a pencil, and he's like, okay, get started. And then he really wanted people who wanted to change their life. And they would get people up there, and they'd say, well, I want to plant a church. Well, I want to be a missionary. Well, I want to go and do something with this organization. I want to move and live my life in this way. And they would walk through what was holding them back. It was interesting to me, I would love to have seen the follow-up because somebody was like, well, I don't know what I do with all my stuff. And Donald Miller has made quite a bit of money. He was like, well, well I'll pay for your storage unit for your first year while you're doing this. Um, trying to sort of weed off the things that can keep you from doing this. And it's weird because you don't really know what to do when somebody calls your bluff like that, I think. <laughs> At least I don't. Um, but I think that's sort of what's happening here and certainly what's happening with the second person. Still another, this is one who says, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Elijah allowed Elisha to do this exact thing. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit in the service of God. Jesus has set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. He knows where he's aiming at. He knows where he's going. He knows what the call and the path is for him. Somebody says, I want to walk in that furrow. I want to follow you, but first, I need to go back and say back goodbye to my family. Now, most of us didn't grow up in plow agrarian societies, but I guess this is true. Uh, my grandpa told me when I was learning to drive that wherever you look, that's where your car will go. 
and it had something to do with my Uncle Tommy looking at a girl and hitting a firecracker. <laughs> uh, true parable in, in modern form. Um, and what happens is if you're setting out to plow a field, where you look is where you will go. And to do a good job at this, you want straight lines. So I want to go in your plural. I want to plow the field with you. But first, I need to look over here. I need to do this thing. I need to follow this path. It doesn't go as planned. So Jesus is saying that this is the time in which you sort of have to set your, yourself in this path and in this direction. And Jesus has a weird relationship to families. Um, he doesn't seem to idolize them the same way that 21st century North America does. The family is the highest good, this, that, and the other. Um, we don't talk about that much, I think, for lots of reasons, some good, some bad. Um, for instance, uh, Will Willimon, who is the dean at Duke Divinity School, would say, what did you do to my daughter? She was going to go be a doctor, and now she signed up to work with Mercy Ships in Africa. Um, Christian parents um, who, who hate to see their children take a path that leads them away from the future they have to live. I mean, one of the ways I think this most clearly shows um, in our lives today is that uh, what do I want for my kids? Um, certainly for them to be good Christians, but not that good. Um, because if you're that good, it comes with trials and sacrifices and things that I, as a parent, may not be ready for. So how do you have the proper relationship to your family with that? How do you deal with that, I think, is part of what Jesus is separating them for. Then there's this other notion that Paul will pick up, and certainly exists in the Gospels, is that the community of disciples becomes a new family becomes one that's not bound by old patterns of, of violence and tribe and this, that, and the other, but it now enables us to live in new ways. And I think every church tries to do that. Um, we fail. Um, I think we fail, uh, myself included, to go fully into that and to say, this is a new family I can rely on like my family. And I think on the other side, the church fails to gather up people and to carry for them in that, too. Uh, it's, it's a dual failure, I think, on both parts here, and so it's difficult. But I think that's what we're called to do. The, the last observation I'd make about families on this is that I think it frees us to actually love our families. I was sitting with a friend who comes from a different stream of the faith than I do, and him and his brother were in this debate about who has sort of the family faith mantle or something like that. And they were fighting over, like, who should be in charge here and this, that, and the other, which incidentally happens in the Gospels. Um, and I was like, you know, if you step back and just loved each other, a lot of these things might disappear. Um, and so I think Jesus' distance he calls us to from families actually ceases to make the family a, a utensil or something to be controlled or idolized or manufactured, but frees it to be what it is. Um, a place that we can find comfort and rest and goodness, but doesn't have to carry everything along with it. So Jesus um, says that you must be able to sort of go in this direction and be set on this path. Those are the three sort of temptations here. We have um, two things I want to end with. One of them is 17 points, so we'll start there. That's not true. Um, 
The first is the, the quote on the back of your bulletin, which I think helps name what's happening in the first part of nine and the second half of nine. And I have uh, some of it up here. I think this is a battle for us today. This is from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, which was um, published uh, before the sort of Nazis come to power in Germany. And what Germany has at this time is a very, very high civic religion where everybody's sort of Lutheran and Christian and knows grace, but nobody does anything. Um, so this might be similar to us in some ways. Um, and so I want to read some of what he says about cheap grace and some of what he says about costly grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. The sacraments of forgiveness of sin and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she can shower blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything they say, and so we can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. The world goes on in the same way, and we are still a sinner, even in the best life, as Luther said. Well, then let the Christian life look, uh, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world standards in every sphere of life, and not presumptively aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Let him be comforted and rest assured in his possession of grace, for grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. That is what we mean by cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and who from sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eyes which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ on which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls me to follow, and it is grace, this is, I think, one of the best lines in here. Such grace is costly because it caused me to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man his, the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace, because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has God cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to dear a price to pray for our life, but delivered him up for us. Crossly grace is the incarnation of God. Apparently I have more, but we'll stop there. We 
like these disciples are called into costly grace to these ones the ones that say can I go back can I bury this person can I do this thing they're called to participate in what God is doing in the world and what we look at we become it's uh, um, and while the cross that hangs behind me or we wear we've decontextualized from what it meant or what it might mean to us when we remember that it reminds us of what we are called to be and where we are called to go. Such is crossly grace. Um, this, this is going to be funny about when you go to college, they're like, how much of the pie do you want to be spirituality? Like, it's the whole thing. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. But I think that's the temptation that, that these disciples are facing. They said, okay, and then notice they use spirituality and not religion, which I think spirituality is a good word, but that's, there's a reason why they chose that. Is they, they have you, okay, you want social time, you've got to study, obviously, the purple. Um, uh, social time, obviously, blue. Uh, sports and religion, okay, pick how big you want those pies to be. And I certainly ruined it for the whole class when I pointed out, and I was not particularly well-liked at college. Um, <laughs> by non-Christian sometimes. I was like, you're misunderstanding what religion is. I mean, whether you're uh, Muslim, Christian, Jew, Buddhist, your God doesn't want a piece of the pie. It wants the whole pie. Um, good way not to have friends. Um, trying to think. Well, uh, sometimes you bite off too much. Um, these two words, uh, Hampton, can you pronounce them again for me? Asceticism. That's the top one. Asceticism. 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 Okay. Asceticism. The acceptance of aesthetic standards is supreme importance. Aesthetic is beauty, an exaggerated devotion to the artistic or the beautiful. This is the one call of the Christian life that they see in the first half in the appearances of glory and the transfiguration. This is saying yes in the world. This is, um, there's a, a common distinction that Luther will play with between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. This is the theology of glory. Um, and we can mistake this for something that which we have rather than that will come someday. We have this yes. The other word, asceticism. Uh, is a lifestyle characterized from an abstinence from sensual pleasures, often for the purpose of experiencing spiritual goals. This is the self-denial, the no in which we have. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? I need to go back and say goodbye to my family, uh, bury my father, uh, do this thing is that these two things are the same word to us from God. There is no no without the yes, and there is no yes without the no. And the Christian life hinges on keeping these things together in their appropriate proportion. You drop off the yes, and the no becomes just drudgery of which we sacrifice nonstop, and there is no goodness to which, the God, which God calls us to. You drop off the no, 
and you end up in some prosperity gospel or some sort of Jesus is fine with my 2% and I don't need to live this out. And it's all glory from here on out. Should be easy. And you miss the call of discipleship and repentance. And I think this is the challenge for us in the world today, is to live and witness to these two realities. The aesthetic and the aesthetic um, um, is to live in relationship with a God has a yes, which is glory, and his divine grace interrupts in the world at times. And it is for us to see that and declare it as good. Creation is not completely abandoned. And yet at the same time, because of the cross, because of the path that Jesus walks, we know that there is much more to repair to be done than can be done. In our own lives, in our own houses, what does it mean to live beautiful lives, yes lives, that exist within constraint and the nose? This quote from Pope Benedict, I've often affirmed my conviction that the true apology of the Christian faith today, the most convincing demonstration of its truth, are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. We're not Catholic, so you would say, and the people of God and the faith that it has generated. Or the martyrs in our tradition and the faith that it has generated. It is a challenge for us to sort of live in this way. And you can see those two dimensions at play in this quote for him and what he thinks will, will progress the faith. He's European. They're further down the road of secularism than we are. But it doesn't seem like natural apologetics does all the work here. But the interruptions come from seeing something of beauty and of restriction and denial in it. And so we'll end from this quote from... Uh, Jamie Smith's How Not to Be Secular. Heavy on quotes this Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, and How Not to Be Secular is a reading edition of the secular age, and we talked about the secular age quite a bit uh, with Leviticus and with books before that, is it's about how we live in this flat age and things don't have the same meaning that they used to. And what Jamie Smith is saying, um, summarizing the book, is that the aridity of that wasteland, the one we live in, the wasteland, coupled with the persistent pressure of transcendence, that there is something beyond. The famous novelist, I can't remember his name, said, um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Um, transcendence doesn't go away when you live in the imminent flat space. It still haunts you. We'll continue to generate third waves of various forms. In that cross-pressured space, some will begin to feel, and to be honest, about the, the paucity of a closed tank in ways that could never have been anticipated, some will wonder if renunciation isn't the way to wholeness. We're crazy about minimalism now. Um, we're crazy about simple beauty. Um, I think true forms of that can actually speak to people, not just, I read Maria Kondo or something like that. Um, in ways that could never have been anticipated, some will begin to wonder if renunciation isn't the way to wholeness. Freedom might be found in the gift of constraint. And the strange rituals of Christian worship are the answer to their most human aspirations, as if their whole life they've been waiting for St. Francis or any disciple who witnesses the goodness of this life that we're called into in which we take up our cross and follow God, and yet it leads to mountaintops of glory. 
The challenge of this section of Luke's Gospel is how do we hold those things together? The beauty of the yes in which God has bestowed upon his creation that is good, and the challenge of self-denial as we go towards the cross. Let us pray. God, in the form of the gospel, we're given the pattern of seeing the restoration that you've undertaken in Son Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Just as we think like the disciples, it's all going to be good. We learned that your goodness can't just interrupt the world continually, that there must be a cross, there must be a dying and rising, there must be a repair that's greater than just the spatterings here and there. And it's for us to follow that path, to go in that way, to be lifted up as well. As your believers here, empower and enable us to walk that road with you. To side which pulls us in the various directions. And to know that it's only you who walks that road faithfully. <clears throat> the best we can do is follow behind the goodness and the trail that you lead us. Amen. Amen.